we're going to take this time now to uh, turn to uh, the reading and the preaching of God's Word. And so we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be beginning uh, our new series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so you can, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you'll find the, the text uh, is printed in your worship folder. Uh, but again, we're, we're beginning this new series, the Sermon on the Mount, which is going to take us all the way through to Darryl's, the end of Daryl's sabbatical. And I have entitled this series, Being Whole Disciples. And the ser- because the Sermon on the Mount is a discourse on what it means to live as a disciple, as a member of the kingdom of God. And this sermon lines out the ethics, the ideals, the virtues that come along with that kingdom. It lays out the expectations for all disciples. This is the model of ethics for how to follow after Jesus. This is the call that he gives to you. And I've entitled it being whole disciples for two reasons. The first one is because the nature of the kingdom is one of wholeness. His kingdom restores wholeness to our lives. It promises true restoration that's to come. And also right now, God is making us people who are, co- who are complete and who are mature even now. He's making us into whole people. But also the second reason I've called it being whole disciples is that the call to discipleship is one that requires our whole selves. Jesus has very real demands for us as we follow him. He doesn't just want some of us, part of us. He doesn't want just outward conformity. He wants inward conformity. He says that following him is with our heart also. It's with the whole self. And the Sermon on the Mount is where these two ideas intersect. It shows that being a part of his kingdom of wholeness means then living that reality with our whole selves. And this is going to be a challenging series, but it's one, though, that I am looking forward to getting in as I've been preparing for it here. So uh, let's pray, and then we're going to read the first passage today that we're going to be looking at, which is the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. But let's pray. Lord God, we come to see you this morning here needing to hear your word. We come wanting to hear your word because it is the words of life for us. We need it. But as we come and approach your word, give us ears to hear. There are some difficult things in here. There are some challenging words that you have. And would your spirit soften our hearts to receive them? Would we come to you now as, worthy, as, as unworthy recipients with, with hands outstretched? Conform us more to the image of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, in his name. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he, being Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. If you drive south on 101 and you cut across on Highway 37 and you end up in Vallejo, you will arrive at Interstate 80. Hop on 80 and drive east. You'll go up and over Donner Pass, drop down to Reno into Nevada. You'll pass then eventually into Utah. You'll go across northern Utah through Salt Lake City. And then you'll start making your way across through Wyoming. And eventually you will come across a sign on 180 that says this. Welcome to Nebraska, the good life. If you doubt whether or not that sign is there, I can personally attest to it having grown up there. I've driven by that sign many times. And you'll look at that sign as you enter western Nebraska and you will wonder if that's really true. Because you look out at endless miles of flat land and feedlots. Things aren't quite the way that it seems. Is this the good life? But as you continue to travel east across the state, you begin to take note of a few things. The terrain begins to change from pan flat into rolling hills. Hills covered in the greens of crops growing and of grasses watered by summer thunderstorms. You look and see sweeping sunrises and sunsets across the prairie. And you begin to encounter people who show kindness and courtesy to strangers that's hard to find these days. And though it may not be your particular version of the good life, you start to see why there are some people who consider it to be theirs, despite surface appearances. Now, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, which are called thus because of the repeated phrase that we see, blessed are, blessed are. Beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessed. Yet blessed isn't really the best translation. Blessed has connotations of receiving favor or blessing. And that leads many of us to regard the Beatitudes as, if I do this, then blessing will come to me. But that's not what the original Greek here word means here. Instead, it refers to a state of being. It's a description of a certain way of life. And it's a really hard, hard word to, to, to try to translate. Some translations try to reflect this idea of the state of being here with the word happy. And that's probably a little bit better in the fact that it does get across this state idea. But the word happy, though, has so many emotive, bubbly connotations to it that it really trivializes the difficulties and hardships that we see outlined here in the Beatitudes. And so the best way for understanding this word blessed isn't do this and be blessed, but rather it's this is what a robust and flourishing life looks like. There's no one good corresponding word that we can use to translate it. Maybe we could call it this instead, the good life. If you were with us last week when we looked at Psalm 1, and you think this sounds familiar when 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 it says, blessed is the man, well, you're right. Because it's the same idea. The same concept is in both. Jesus, when he talks about blessed 
um, are those, or blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are on and on here, he's describing the good life. And as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about what life as a disciple in the kingdom of God looks like, we can understand this. The good life is living in this kingdom. The good life is found by being a disciple, by being a follower of Jesus in this kingdom. So then perhaps we could read the Beatitudes like this. The poor in spirit are living the good life because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn are living the good life for they shall be comforted. Those who are meek are living the good life for they shall inherit the earth on and on. And even to when we get to the end, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake are living the good life. When you are reviled by others and persecuted, when you have all sorts of false things thrown against you, you're living the good life. And so just as you drive across I-80 and you encounter the sign, Nebraska, the good life, and you have some serious doubts on whether or not that's really true, we read Jesus' statement here about the good life, and we wonder, is this really true? Because we don't associate this way of life with goodness. We generally try to escape these sorts of things. Yet despite appearances, this is what the good life really looks like. It's unexpected. It has a hidden quality beneath it all. It goes past the first impressions here, and when we begin to be enlightened by the deeper realities, we start to understand that the good life, though fraught with difficulties along the way, is found by being a disciple of Jesus and his kingdom. And so to get started, we're going to briefly walk through each of them. But a lot of our time is going to be spent, though, stepping back to understand them as a whole. To hear Jesus' words to me and to you here as he calls us into this life of his kingdom. And so let's first look at these eight Beatitudes. These statements that Jesus gives us here about life in a, as a disciple in his kingdom. About following him with our whole selves. Now it starts out, he is speaking to his disciples on the mountain. This is for them. And so these statements then describe life as a disciple. It means this is life as part of his, in part of his kingdom. And these are characteristics also then for us as members of his kingdom. This is what the life of following Jesus looks like. And we can group them into two sets of four. The first four roughly describe life vertically with God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. It's a poverty which goes beyond physical destitution, but bears down upon the soul. Poverty in the Old Testament is often associated with dependence. Being poor in spirit feels that deeply. It's a poverty that's directed towards God. It knows that we are nothing and that we have nothing on our own. And it goes through life acknowledging that. Yet Jesus says that it's these who live the good life because theirs is the kingdom of God. Though they feel the gnaw of their destitution and dependence, they have everything. And it's because of their dependence that they receive the kingdom from God by his grace rather than taking it. We go on to the next one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn. Not bereavement in, in, in experiencing loss, but it's a sadness of condition and, and of circumstances. Mourning knows the misery of life both in the world around us and also in the feeling sense of our own depravity. 
Mourning allows us to be honest with life's circumstances. It allows us to be honest with ourselves and to not paper over it. It gives us the freedom to weep over the world and over our struggles and that we can come to God with them. But here's the goodness in that. It says that Jesus says that they shall be comforted. Even though we feel the depths of mourning, being a disciple opens us up to the realities of God's comfort, both future, but also knowing him as a comforter even right now. The next one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Being meek, humility, embracing lowliness, knowing who we are before God. Now, we understand this here to be a a virtue. Be humble. No one likes a braggart. But humility, though, in this culture was seen as weakness, particularly in an ancient honor-shame culture. Because humility meant taking the least desirable position in society and bearing no social status. It meant willingly putting yourself at the bottom. There was no way that this was considered to be a flourishing position or considered to be the good life. And that really hasn't changed much today. It takes honesty to be meek, to be humble. It means that we're honest with ourselves and it means that we give up everything. But Jesus, though, says this, that to them then belongs everything, even the whole earth. The next one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger, thirst for righteousness. Righteousness referring to right and holy conduct in life. Living in a right way before the face of God. But the emphasis here is on desire. It's hungering, thirsting. It's that desire to live this way. Being a disciple means desiring to live righteously before God. But at the same time, though, too, we can acknowledge that we feel our own weaknesses, our own inabilities to live as members of God's kingdom or to live properly as Jesus' followers, to do all what God desires for us. But the comfort, though, that we have is this. That those who hunger and thirst to live righteously will have their desires satisfied. That God will look upon his people and give them what they cannot do on their own. That he will be at work in them to fulfill their desires to live rightly or even to change their desires and to eventually then bring them into full satisfaction to be saved to sin no more. So those are the first four, directed Godward. Maybe we could say that the second four then, the last four, describe life not vertically but horizontally now with others. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. The merciful, those who show mercy to one another. But yet mercy though is more than just forgiveness. It means not enacting revenge. It means dealing kindly to our enemies or in harsh circumstances. It means bestowing generosity. See, at its heart, mercy is giving to others what is undeserved. And in this sense, mercy is a form of lowliness because it's costly. Yet those who show mercy will be shown mercy in turn by God. In fact, it's because a disciple has been shown so much mercy, God's free grace given to them that is absolutely undeserved, that's why they will show mercy then to others. Because it is the characteristic of God which then becomes characteristic of his followers. If showing mercy is this undeserved giving, then the undeserved generosity of God will be heaped upon them. 
The next one, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. A purity that isn't bound by externals, but a purity that gets to the very depth of one's own heart. See, it's not the bright minds. It's not the forward thinkers. It's not the emotively religious, but it's the pure of heart who are declared as living the good life. Psalm 24 speaks of the pure in heart who seek after God, and they will see his face. They will behold his glory in his presence. And Psalm 24 connects being pure in heart, seeking after God, with how we live together. The pure in heart do not lift up their souls against one another as they seek after God. Because times that we spend with others can reveal our hearts, even if we are externally pure with one another. Purity makes people uncomfortable because it shows us our own dirt, especially true inner pureness. Yet despite the weirdness that being pure in heart may bring on, it says that they will see God. And as they live with one another in this purity, it's the presence of God will be seen then even now as it is made visible in the body of Christ. Then we have the next one, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers are those who extend peace and reconciliation. Those who recognize that reconciliation is better than exacting our own revenge against those who wrong us. Being rather, who would rather forgive than take the pound of flesh that we think that we deserve. Because the kingdom to which they are brought, of is, brought into is a kingdom of peace. Of peace and reconciliation with God which will then, that peace will then eventually fill the whole world. Yet peace is is costly. Peace requires us to give up what seems natural or what we consider to be our rights. It's why striking peace accords is so difficult because everyone has their own demands that they bring to the table. But they will be called sons of God. In other words, God's children will reflect his image and, ch- and, and character just as a child bears the likeness of his or, or her parents. And then the last one we have, it's almost like two that are rolled up into one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then go, Jesus goes on to make it a lot more personal. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil. All of this here, though, if you note here, it says, blessed are you, um, or blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That assumes that a righteousness is lived out. A public identification and following after Jesus that's made evident by a righteous character of life. Now, all these beatitudes here are on varying places of the spectrum of countercultural living. And this one buries the needle. It shows the reality of being a disciple And what it will eventually and and inevitably bring. Because being a disciple is bearing a citizenship to a kingdom that is not like the world. In fact, it's one that makes the world uncomfortable to the point of hating it. Jesus says, though, it's nothing new. The Old Testament prophets who came and spoke for God to his people when they lived more like the other nations than God, well, the same thing happened to them. But the reason why one lives the good life when they are hated is because they already have the kingdom. Their citizenship is stamped. Their seat at the table is open and waiting. In fact, that's the the very reason why they are persecuted. And this is what Jesus calls the good life. 
This is what it looks like to live as a disciple in all of your life. It's the ideals for every person who follows Jesus. So let's step back now. What do we learn about the good life from what Jesus says? First, it's a life of lowliness. It's a life of lowliness. Walking the path of discipleship is utterly countercultural. It will put you at odds with the values that come natural to society. And if we're honest, the values that come natural to ourselves. Because there's this common thread throughout all of the Beatitudes. It's the embrace of lowliness. The willingness to give up our own rights and even give up what others might consider to be our own dignity for the sake of following a better Lord. Jesus says that the ideals of being a disciple in his kingdom aren't about power. It's not about status. It's not about seeking advance or asserting yourself. It's not about making a name for yourself. It's not about comfort. It's not about independence. No, it is acknowledging our utter poverty and destitution. Reveling in the fact that we are dependent. Longing for righteousness before God over strength and security. It's embracing a state of lowliness before everyone. It means giving up any sense of status, or frankly, even dignity, in the eyes of the world for the sake of Jesus. Because it holds out what, who he is and what he offers as infinitely more valuable, even valuable enough to forsake all other things. And if we take an honest look at this, we see that it requires all of us. It requires our whole selves. Being a disciple, enjoying the good life, will cost us. We will have to give up everything that others around us think is valuable. And we may just end up looking like fools because of what we desire and our honest recognition of who we are. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 writes in a rather wry fashion that we are the dregs of society, that we are the scum of the earth. The Beatitudes and Jesus' calling them to follow in his kingdom is inherently countercultural as it embraces lowliness. And we need to feel their weight. Because in one sense, we ought to look at them from a fairly almost dark perspective. Because it's calling us to a life that isn't very pleasant. It's a life that embraces suffering for righteousness, for being honest about the misery and the wretchedness of not only life, but about our own states. It has a willingness to be wronged, to take the mantle of shame rather than status. I mean, friends, do we really understand what it means to be a part of his kingdom? Let's just be honest here. This is difficult. Jesus is issuing a call to follow him that's going to be really costly. Living the good life means inviting hardship and discomfort into our lives. It will require us then to give up our own selves in the sight of the watching world. And these words challenge us. They confront our ideas of what it means to live the good life. Do I really believe that this is the good life? Am I willing to embrace lowliness and, counter, and a countercultural posture for the sake of what Jesus offers? The reality is that even in our best moments when we say, yes, when we're inspired there, we find ourselves to be so quite inadequate. We're even left asking ourselves, am I even able to do this? I want to, but it's so hard and I'm so weak. 
Without this long perspective, though, it looks like just suffering for its own sake. You see, without this deeper perspective, we miss who God is to us in those moments when we do suffer and are reviled and go through trial and difficulty. And so we need to see that not only is it a life of lowliness, but the second point, it is a life of blessedness. It's a life of blessedness. The call to be a disciple isn't easy. It's countercultural. It opens us up to just how dependent we are. It's full of unpleasant confrontation with ourselves and with others. Yet despite appearances, though, this really is the good life. Now, there's a, there is this level of darkness in how it's lived right now. It's to forsake comfort for suffering, but because there's something better. Because there's light and joy that goes beyond the darkness. You can fly in an airplane beneath a dark and cloudy sky, but as you continue to gain elevation and, as, and ascend, when you get above the level of the clouds, of those dark clouds, and you break through, what do you see? It's beauty and brilliance and light. Despite the trials that the Beatitudes invite, there's blessedness to be had here. And Jesus himself gives us that assurance. Not only from his words, as he tells us, but because he walked it. He put aside all divine privilege as the Son of God, and he embraced lowliness. He took on the most humble estate and became dependent. Righteousness was his desire. He walked in purity of heart. He brought peace and reconciliation to his enemies by his cross. He was reviled unto death for his total, wholehearted commitment to seeing his kingdom flourish. And he did it so that not only would he experience the good life in his resurrection and in his glory, but he did it to bring people like you and me into that same kingdom. Jesus knows the good life, and he shares it with abundance to the undeserving. And as he calls you then into his kingdom to follow after him as a disciple, he invites you to live this life with him, both the suffering, but also the glory. And the glory is so much better, and it overtakes all of the shadows that we feel in this life. Our belief that this is really the way is bound to waver at times. Where will we find assurance when appearances bring a level of doubt? It's in Jesus who walked that road ahead of us. And the path to discipleship then soon becomes a joy and a privilege. We come to learn more about who God is for us in the times of hardship. That he's at work in us. That he's continuing to strengthen us. That what he offers is of infinite value over the life and the values that others would try to convince us of. That the joy of this life and the lowliness that it calls us to isn't some, just some sort of cathartic pain. No, the joy is in what it gives, of knowing more deeply the one who gives. See, the good life laid out in the Beatitudes is both a future hope, but it's also an experience to be had right now. Even in the darkness that following Jesus might bring to you, he still brings hope and comfort. It's a reality that's to come, but yet also stretches back into our everyday moments. So that there's a satisfaction which is to come that we'll have. You see that reflected in so many of the future tenses of the verb. They, they shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall receive mercy. 
the momentary affliction of this life is more than outweighed by the eternal weight of glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. But there's also a way that is experienced in a, right now. So that in our moments of lowliness and confusion, as we seek to follow God with our whole selves, he comes to us so that we will experience the future blessings in our suffering even right now in those moments. Note even the present tense in verses 2 and verse 11 that the kingdom of God is already ours. The invisible reality behind the curtain of life, even when it seems that you stand against the whole world, is that the kingdom is yours. And the God and Father of all our comforts meets us in affliction and our mourning. And he sends his spirit as our present comforter. He fills our desires to live righteously by being our very source of righteousness when we're lacking. He shows mercy to us in our most desperate times. He gives glimpses of us, of his presence seen in the church. He already calls us sons and daughters of God as we are adopted into his family and bear all the rights and privileges. But see, though, we see that it's not only a life of lowliness, it's not only a life of blessedness, but the Beatitudes are also a life of grace. It's a life of grace. That life in the kingdom of God means being under his gracious rule. His kingdom is centered on grace. And Jesus sits enthroned as the gracious king. Its citizens were graciously redeemed from darkness into light, not by anything that they did, not by anything that they could do. Your entrance, it wasn't accomplished on how well you could meet a particular standard, but it was by the grace of God. It's the cross of Jesus that cleanses you. It's his merit that makes you fit. His welcome and joy that bids you to come and follow after him. And so we come to him trusting and reaching out then our empty hands in utter dependence. Because we have nothing else to offer. But yet Jesus gives us everything. He shakes us from our dead slumbers and our wandering ways. And he shows us that the path to living the truly good life goes through him. And so discipleship itself becomes a way that we experience grace. All these entail a dependent, longing disposition that looks up to God. Longing and holding out our empty hands, needing him to fill them with good things. This dependence here is a constant reminder that we are people in deep need. And God is so good that he would give us what we need in abundance. And as we plod along in lowliness... It forces us to look past ourselves and whatever else we might find along the way that we think for that moment might satisfy our needs. And instead it forces us to look upwards to his open and generous hand and to receive from him by faith alone. And see, the Beatitudes prepare us for grace. One author I read this week likened the Beatitudes to a plow. That when we read them, and especially when we experience them firsthand, we feel their hard edge like a plow which furrows us. The sufferings and hardships that come to us opening deep rows in our hearts. Like a plowshare then that which turns the dirt over. The trials and the struggles which come to us through discipleship upturns our souls and opens furrows in our inner beings. But only then 
when we're properly prepared, are we ready to receive the seeds of grace that God plants within us? Apart from the struggles and difficulties of following Jesus in such a radical way, we may continue then to be untilled soil hardened by our own illusions that we can really do it by ourselves. But God is just so good that he would till our hearts and make us ready to receive him, that he would cause us to look past ourselves and our own weak strength to instead cast our eyes and to lean with our whole entire being upon Jesus in humble reliance. It's those times when we feel our need the most, when we're at our wit's end, when we are confused, that we cry out for grace all the more. Peter, in John 6, Jesus has just said some really hard things, and pretty much most of his followers leave, and everyone's just kind of confused. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, are you guys going to go too? And Peter's words, all he can say is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. So as we learn, as we follow Jesus, we learn more about his character. We learn about his grace, his kindness, the difficulty of this life that he lays out here. In our moments when we question whether or not this is really the good life, only highlights his patience towards us. He's so kind to not cast us away in rejection or in disgust or abhorrence at our failures to follow as wholly as he demands but rather he continues to show his mercy and grace for us as it was wrought at the cross. And so we're left with nothing better to do than to lean on him to live in this way. If you want to be a more faithful disciple, and if you take seriously his demand then to be a wholehearted disciple, then lean upon Jesus. Come to him and seek his strength and the life that he is more than willing to give. Friends, despite all appearances, this is the good life. And Jesus welcomes you into it then by following after him as a disciple in his kingdom. And he calls us to follow him not halfway, but with our whole selves. It's a life that will put us at odds with the world, but it's also a life where goodness and joy is found. A life where he brings us into a kingdom of wholeness and flourishing to be experienced even now, despite appearances. Friends, welcome to the good life, as we're going to continue to elaborate upon as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Lord, when you call someone to be one of your followers, you bid us to give up everything and to give you all that we are. Yet not just for... Uh, the sake of giving things up or the sake of um, asceticism, but for gaining something much greater, ultimately to gain you, but also to be brought into a kingdom, brought into new life. And this life that you call us into is hard right now. Your words cut us deep in this, and it challenges our assumptions on what it means to really live a good life. But Father, we pray that you would show us mercy in these times as we are forced to look up to you in dependence, as we want to seek after and follow after your son Jesus as his disciples. 
And would you make us then wholehearted disciples by your spirit at work within us? Continue to put this vision of, the, of this good life in front of our eyes and put it in our hearts to remember then the goodness of being poor in spirit, of being meek, of being persecuted, of being merciful, peacemakers, all of these things, yet not just because they are ideals which you have called us to, but also because we get to know your grace and your goodness and know you deeper in the midst of our experiences of them. And that there is a life to be lived right, not only right now, but a life of glory to be gained someday. Prepare us for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.